Welcome everyone to Business Growth on Purpose. My name is Jose Palomino. I'm CEO of Value Prop Interactive. And it is my great pleasure every week to be interviewing experts from around the world, owners of other B2B businesses, and sometimes just sharing some of my personal insights from decades of helping businesses grow on purpose. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the episode. Welcome everyone to Business Growth on Purpose. I'm your host, Jose Palomino. And today we're going to talk about something that anyone who's involved in complex sales, if you sell a big service, like an engineering firm, an architecture firm, or you sell a complicated piece of equipment or any other industrial service where proposals are an essential or necessary part of your sales cycle, and more importantly, your buyer's buying cycle. Our guest is Jim Rogers. He's an expert in this area, and we are so excited to have him on the show today. So listen closely. If you're in a world where you have to do proposals that win, you don't want to miss what's coming next. Welcome, Jim, to Business Growth on Purpose. Thanks for having me, Jose. Yeah, our our pleasure. So, Jim, uh, just for our audience sake to give a little context here. And I know when when I talk to people who've been experienced doing a lot of things in in the business world, sometimes it's a little challenging to ask this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What do you do primarily and who do you do it for primarily? Yes. So I help professional services firms, especially owners, win more work. And I do that in a couple of different ways. One is I'm a proposal consultant and shortlist interview presentation coach when people are going after a, a pursuit an opportunity or contract that they really want to win and they, they need some help and what they've been doing in the past hasn't been working. So I do that. And then the other thing is, is, and this was the second piece is, is focused a little bit more on a particular segment in professional services, architects and engineers. I have something called the seller doer Academy and it teaches, it teaches technical professionals how to sell, which they really don't want to do. And so I try to make it easy for them. So everybody's right. you're not counting on a few rainmakers at the top to make all the to bring in all the revenue, get everybody working up and down the line. Well, that's all about winning more, winning more business, more, more, I guess, more easily and uh, and more profitably. That's great. And, and you mentioned the proposal stuff at the front end. Um, let me dig into that a little bit. Right. Because I've seen in, in all the years I've been working with mostly owner led businesses, mostly in industrial professional categories. Uh, I've asked for samples of their proposals and so on. And, you know, candidly, I haven't seen any that really are that impressive. They're either overly written, like way too long, too many words about themselves, or they're very, basically, it's almost like back of a napkin uh, kind of stuff, you know, just a couple of bullet points. And it's just not enough information there. So I'm going to ask an impossible question to answer, but I know you'll give it a good shot, which what are some of the elements, the, like the top three or four things that make a great proposal a great proposal in your experience? Yeah. So you said something really interesting there. Maybe we'll start start in a little different place than I'm, than I'm used to starting. You said you've seen some that were back of a cocktail napkin, not quite enough, or some that were too much. The interesting thing is either one of those could win. Okay. Because people spend too much time thinking about the written proposal and then writing is not the skill that wins these things. It's listening. Mm. It's the listening 
that happens earlier before somebody asks you for a proposal where these things are won or lost. So usually by the time somebody asks you for a proposal, if you're in a competitive situation, you got a handful of other people that you're going up against, they may already have a preference or be leaning a particular way. And it's too late by the time it's time to get the, the words down on paper. So what the proposal can do, it, it could flat out lose it for you if you don't connect with what they're looking for, or <clears throat> it could break a tie, maybe a little bit of a come from behind victory, right? I'm in, I'm here in Lexington, Kentucky. We like to use horse racing terminology. You know, it's hard to be a dead late closer. If you know what that is, it means you come from way behind at the end of the race and win it down the stretch. Doesn't happen very often in, in business, right? If you're that far behind or the way I like to think of it is if you're, if you have a little bit of an edge, cause you've done a better job listening along the business development cycle during the sales process, you slam the door shut, you remove all doubt. And that's really what the buyer wants is they want to make sure they didn't screw up make best choice, the firm that's going to help them achieve whatever it is they're trying to achieve. And all of that happens in the business development or the sales cycle leading up to the proposal. And that's where they're won or lost. Not when you put your fingers to the keyboard. Wow. So what's interesting about that is I know sometimes, um, especially in smaller companies where there really isn't a great resource or talent in terms of pure salesmanship, business development, as, as you're referring to it there. So they kind of hope that, well, we'll make it up in the document. We're going to sell this in the proposal. So do you run into that a lot, that kind of like either explicit or implicit thought that the proposal is going to finish the sale for us? Yeah, yes, I do. And the interesting Interestingly, when I said sometimes you could win on the back of the cocktail napkin, sometimes you could win with an overwritten proposal. I had a client call me yesterday and said they won something that I helped them work on. And I was getting ready to go on vacation and this thing was overwritten. So I really helped him with structure. I helped write the cover letter for him, helped figure out how to write his, his approach, technical approach section. You know, this was an engineering, <clears throat> engineering contract for highway engineering. And I was like, wow, this guy is really gone overboard here. And, but what that can do sometimes, because uh, he had never met with the decision makers. Mm. And so I usually recommend against going after one of those, if you've never even met with the decision makers as part of the sales process, it was a cold solicitation an RFP that came out that was advertised that anybody could reply to. Well, what that showed was his passion for the work that he really, he'd done all this legwork and thinking about it and other people just kind of mailed it in, right? They did the back of the napkin because they had a relationship with the client and they took it for granted. So it, it you never know what's going to work for you. Um, but what I would say is what he did was, you know, he went, where he went overboard was in really digging into the details of the client's project and not talking about his qualifications because frankly, they weren't more qualified than the people that they beat in terms of track record of doing that kind of work, they hadn't really done a lot of that work. What he did was he outworked his competitors in researching the client situation and what they needed. And so, you know, I, I told, I, I told my client who, you know, who's the boss of the, the person who won this deal. I said, you know, we, we love and hate these stories, right? Right. Because what we just, what we just had was one of those rare instances where somebody wins a piece of work when they didn't do the relationship building up front. But what he did was, and I've got a, uh, two girls that are freshmen in college right now. We just sent them off in the last month. 
and I've got a junior son who's going to be looking at colleges and the, the, the college consultant, the, the, uh, that's working with us talks about um, the schools that like demonstrated interest. And I really kind of didn't understand what that meant until she said, yeah, you go visit the campus. That's demonstrated interest. If you're not, there's some schools that just throw money at you and the, based on the paper and your grades right. and all that kind of stuff and that you're going to get in. There's some schools that are tougher to get into. If you're not going to go do a campus visit, you're probably not going to get in. That's so that's what this young professional did that won this piece of work was he demonstrated interest in the client and wanted to do the work. It was passion. He wore it on his sleeve. Well, what's interesting about that, Jim, and the way you framed it, so it's demonstrated interest in the client and the client problem, because every selling organization can demonstrate their interest in winning. <laughs> like I always tell sellers, I say, we know you want the order. That's not the, that's not a, that's not in doubt. The question is what you're what you're reflecting on here is that the client says you're really you're into me. If I'm the client, I want you to be into me and fixing my problem. I'm not interested in fixing your revenue issue. That's not my criteria. That's not on my list of things that matter to me. Yeah. Um, for, for him, it wasn't about the money. It was about the work. He thought it was a really cool project. And that probably came across in how he described what he, what he wanted to do, that it was a cool project, that it was interesting to them. That, Absolutely. Wow. So, that's interesting. So I, I love the the idea of whether it's a, a an overly written or underwritten. What matters is that core thought that comes across that I've paid attention and that I actually want to solve your problem. Right. That's that's the number one thing. So one thing I've seen in a lot of technical categories and you talked about even in the example you just gave, not spending a lot of time on qualifications necessarily right so a lot of technical companies i've worked with a lot of technology companies they spend a lot of time telling you how great their whiz bang 9000 is right and all the things the whiz bang 9000 can do and boy it's made to within three micrometers of uh, tolerances and things like that so how do you shift that thinking when you're dealing with technical sales organizations that are in love with their own stuff either services or they make a machine or whatever you know, and at some point you do have to tell people what your thing is, but what's the right mix or balance there? How do, how do you navigate that? And, and how much of that has to find its way into a proposal? Yeah, that's a great question. So you nailed something. If you'd asked me what one of the biggest mistakes is, it's, it's, it's really not connecting to decision maker values. Sometimes the cocktail na napkin might do it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the detail proposal, like in the case I just gave you, might do it. But really what, what matters most is, are you connecting to what they're really looking for, kind of their unstated, unspoken needs? And are you listening during the sales process? Are you listening to what they're really telling you, which is not just about features and functionality, right? That's kind of, you know, to boil down what you were talking about, it's features and fun functionality of whatever it is you're selling. And if you're selling services, then that's your qualifications, right? That's your credentials and your, your track record of doing stuff for other clients that's similar because clients, first and foremost, don't want to screw up and they want to make a solid choice. So that means picking somebody who's done this kind of work before and not somebody who's doing it for the first time, you know? So what, but the, the, the mistake is not understanding what the buyer values are. And it's instead resting on your laurels or, or 
building everything on your reputation and your history and your product or service. And that really is a statement of qualifications as opposed to a, a, a proposal that's that has a sales, has some salesmanship to it. And I don't want to make this sound too scary for people who don't like to sell, but it's connecting to, uh, you know, what does this decision maker really care about for this particular procurement that they're making, right? The decision they're trying to make. Are they, if all of the things being equal, if there are five, let's just use uh, architecture firms here, because those are some of the folks I work with. Five architecture firms could do a great job with me. I can't tell the difference between their credentials, which happens all the time. You got good choices or there'd be a monopoly out there. There'd be one right. firm that wins all these, all these contracts, right? A lot of really good people, good choices, great track records, nice people, easy to work with, right? So how, how am I really going to distinguish? I'm going to distinguish if you can let me know that if I have multiple projects going on in this particular project, should be fairly simple and I shouldn't have to worry about it, then you could talk to me about this is going to be no unnecessary effort on your part, right? We're going to hand, we're going to take care of this for you. We know you have other big projects going on that require more of your attention or, you know, this, we're going to, you know, this could be a lot of hassle. This project could be a lot of hassle. If you're getting, you know, 2 a.m. phone calls from a somebody on the school board because they've got a parent that's upset with that and they're, you know, this stuff flows downhill. So it's going to come back and hit you. Hey, we're going to make sure that doesn't happen. Right. Because we're going to be we're going to make preemptive strikes. So it's not just uh, to, to prevent those kinds of things from happening. So it's knowing, you know, and I've got a list of these that I teach people things to listen for. They might be looking for a stepping stone in their career. Hey, this is a real career maker. So when you start to weave messages into your cover letter, into your approach, into your statement of quals, find places to put it, say, look, we're going to be here to make sure that this is delivered on time and budget because we know this is important for your career. And some of these things don't always make it in the written proposal because it's awkward. There could be multiple people reading it. Right. Who are you really writing. These are the messages that you can reinforce if you want to keep in it and hammering home the message that we're going to deliver on schedule and, and on budget. Right. Because we know that that's going to connect to something that they care about, <clears throat> not just the qualifications. So one might be that, you know, they may one might be independence. Hey, I've got a boss that micromanages me. If I do a good job on this one, he might quit looking over my shoulder because he'll exactly. trust me. So I win my, my independence. I, I, I lose that dependence on my boss. And that's liberating for somebody. Once you understand why that particular project or contract's important to them, it's a different kind of proposal that you're writing. Because now you're writing to connect to what that person knew their head or their heart or their gut, what really matters to them because they've got a choice between three, four, five good firms who could deliver the work, but can they deliver the kind of success that I'm looking for personally? So a question, Jim, in connection with that. So two, two actually two questions immediately come to mind. One is, it sounds like it's very important that early upfront in a formal proposal, you do kind of a recap of the issues that you're trying to solve. So we have alignment or agreement with the customers to what it is that matters to them. Now I've seen that done where that gets that's 10 pages and people just glaze over it and they stipulate, yeah, you probably listened to us and you you took notes and you missed the impact of maybe a shorter version of that, like a summary summary, which says, okay, the five things that seem to matter most to you are one, two, it all fits on one page. You could scan it, 
the detail analysis could come after that. Is that a good practice? It like is really net, net, net the whole thing. Yeah, it is. I usually like to have one big idea. You know, people talk about wind themes is a term that your, some of your okay. listeners may be familiar with, but it's the one big overarching reason to, to hire somebody. But there could be three to five, hopefully no more than seven. I try to keep people in the three to five range, supporting points gotcha. that line up underneath that one big idea. Right. And the one big idea might be uh, no hassle. This project should be no hassle. For right. You. Right. So how, what are we going to do to do that? You know, we're going to make sure we take the lead on communication. We, you know, we over communicate so the people, you know, we set expectations so the people aren't surprised along the way because that's what creates the phone calls, you know, angry phone calls. So you, then you line up what you're going to do or, you know, examples of things you've done in the past to support that idea that, that you're going to eliminate hassle or worry for them or unnecessary effort on their part which is a good thing if you're selling stuff to public, to, to governments, but that's, um, I'll hang, hang on to that thought for a second. So yeah, usually you can do that. The first two, if it's a one page executive summary or cover letter, which is the, really a sales document, right. too many people think of it as a transmittal and they say, we're pleased to submit this proposal, right? I've actually seen it called transmittal. We're per, and and that, uh, to me, that's a transmittal letter. And uh, what, I, what I, a sales letter starts with is, this project is important or you're 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 undertaking this pro program right now because the time is right for you to uh, you know to build this new to build this new school right right uh, in an un underserved community right and so, so you're starting with the why now you know people like to talk about simon sinek and why now hey why now why are you doing this project now instead of doing something else doing nothing doing it yourself and or, you know, or buying this product or service, why are you doing this now? <laughs> and that's an important, that's a real easy place to start. Cause then what you're doing is you're connecting with them and they're going, yeah, they get me. Cause they're not really ready to listen to your statement of qualifications until you've demonstrated in some way that you understand them and what they're trying to achieve. And that's not just scope of work, right? There's other stuff that gets wrapped in that. Like right. anybody can create great deliverables. Anybody can deliver projects for clients, but can you can you help them achieve other things that that's where the differences are made in winning or losing a deal? You know. So, so I want to get your get, point. Yeah, it can be real succinct, succinct. Three to five bullet points. It can be done in the first paragraph or two, and then you can move on from there. It does not have to go on forever. Now there are requirements, you know, technical requirements. Sure. Of course, you have to address those, or you're going to be tossed out for not, you know, checking some boxes there but a lot of this can be done really tightly up front so part, part of what i help people do is i they so i had a client called me a savage editor once and i kind of wear that with pride right is <laughs> i help them eliminate what i'll call one of, one of the other big mistakes people make to your point about having too much information is is clutter and i call it verbal and visual vomit right the the verbal vomit is just too many words. I can't, you know, right. help me focus, right? This is just too much. I've got, I got to read 10 of these where I have to evaluate 10 of them. I don't right. have to read them all. If one, one of them that'll look credible, I'm going to, like, you were lazy. I'm going to throw it away because you don't really want my business. You took me for granted. Um, so there's, there's, there's that. And then the, the visual is, you know, are you, and, and I don't, 
I'm not a visual designer, but I know what looks wrong. You know, mm-hmm. I know how to use white space on a page to make things right. easy for people to read. I know when images are too small. I know some of the big ideas, but there's a lot of clutter visually that people put in proposals that make it too hard to read, too hard to comprehend, too hard to remember. And I call that visual vomit. So that's the, the, the too much clutter that gets in the way of my key messages, those three to five things you want me to remember when I finish reading the document. We're hearing your, your sales presentation, right? If you're in a, they call it shortlist interview presentation and, mm-hmm. and the industries I work in, but it's frankly a sales pitch, competitive sales pitch. When you walk out of the room, your competitors are in the hallway ready to walk in. <laughs> do theirs. You get, right, you stick your foot out so they trip. No, I'm just kidding, but you wouldn't do that. Uh, no, you say, there's no reason to go in. We already <laughs> <laughs> don't waste right time. get you might as well have a good lunch right you know on me so uh very uh, you know in the time remaining here john i want to explore just a related subtext theme to all of this which is often in in tech any kind of technical industrial service sale whatever where you're doing a proposal if you're selling to a larger entity whether that's government or a large corporation they have in many cases, have made the procurement process so formal, they kind of want to smash out all the soft stuff. So you you can't get to the decision maker. They literally prevent you from doing so. And in fact, it's bad form. It's disqualifying in some cases for you trying to. Right. Um, they give you a format to respond to that's very precise. So a lot of these key points, you may not have a chance to have either enter them into the equation have them looked at at all, or in fact, be allowed to do that stuff. So I guess my question is, how do you inject the thing? And by the way, everything you said really, really matters. Like creating alignment between me as a supplier and you as a customer and making sure I'm aligned to the things that matter most to you as an organization is actually good for you as the buyer to know that. But some of the modern procurement techniques and processes try to eliminate that they want it to all be like an ai selection process so how do you how do you do you just like opt out of that game but that's a that's a that's a game everywhere so how do you play that game yeah i i wish i had a good answer for that early on when people would ask me that because if you do business with the federal government they have this f sf 330 procurement form for the industry that i'm in construction industry and it's very, to your point, very specific about what you can do where there's one section in there, I forget it's section H or M, where there's some creativity where you can, where you can do something, right? But, but you know, frankly, what those folks are looking for when they have that kind of procurement process, they think you're a commodity and they're really looking to consolidate suppliers, right. And, 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 or, and to get economies of scale and squeeze people on price. I don't work with people in the industries where it's that commoditized, right. There's all the, usually there's a personal element to it. I don't know how to help people. That is really harder. I mean, there's some things that you can do, but it really is tough. Jose. Just is right. Because they, yeah. and you, but you said, you said, I think it's exactly the point. If, if they view what you do as any one of these fruit would be fine for the fruit salad. It doesn't matter which one. <laughs> Pick one if you want strawberries, apples, bananas. It's all the same. If it's all the same to them, it's going to be hard. They've created a process that they will never get. In fact, they will never get value add. They'll just get the basics. And that's, you know, that's shame on them. And there's a lot of people in procurement that kind of operate on that basis. 
So if you're a company competing and you find yourself, I'm always in these three bid, five bid RFP situations where I'm just filling out forms. Is the word there that either become very good and efficient, and that's a volume game, or find a way to create some di differentiation that might attract different kind of buyers? I mean, it's, it sounds like it's it's one or the other. You're not gonna you're not gonna change the federal government's procurement process in a if they're buying bunk beds for you know for military uh, dorms. Yeah, which I don't know how many listeners you're gonna have who are who are selling that, but maybe. Huh? <laughs> so yeah, you know. It, it's it really is it, it it really is they're really trying to get it down to price. But here's when they get in, say, say federal government or maybe even state and local government. One of the things somebody told me years into this, when I was you know trying to help people overcome the barriers that you're talking about, is they said, Jim, the, some of these governments don't read proposals; they score them. Mm -hmm. So they've got their card and they're looking for criteria. First thing they're trying to do is, is throw out people that are out of compliance. I read results of something a client of mine came in second for out of like 10, 10 bidders. And he sent me the scorecard and they finished second. He was really excited. I was like, well, some people hate finishing second because you'd rather like finish eighth because then maybe you just completely blew it. Right. right. Um, and he said, no, I was pretty happy because of the people we, we beat. But I, they actually had very specific comments about why they thought that they didn't meet the qualifications or weren't specific enough. And, and that was a pretty regimented pro procurement, you know? So that was valuable because then you figure out why you, why you made a mistake. But in terms of scoring the, the proposal, uh, that was enlightening to me for somebody to put it that way, because they were basically telling me they're going to ignore your sales messages, Jim. So I, I just, people, when people call on me and they want to work on one of those, I'll say, hey, if there's a shortlist interview presentation, call me then, right? Get in the hunt. Don't screw up. Don't be out of compliance. Put your best foot forward. If you want me to look at something, I will, but I'm probably not going to be able to roll up my sleeves and make a difference for you. Uh, but if you, get, if you get an interview situation, call me. I can help you then. Wow. Sure. Well, Jim, there's so much in this topic. I mean, it's a really important topic to anybody who's selling in the B2B space, and they're often going to find themselves in a situation. So if somebody listening said, gee, I'd like to learn more about what Jim does, maybe contact you and so on, where should they go to, to find out more about you or to make contact with you? Yeah, the best place is unbridledrevenue.com. So unbridled, like the horse. Hey, I'm here in Kentucky. Unbridled, okay. U-N-B-R-I-D-L-E-D, revenue just like it sounds, R-E-V-E-N-U-E.com. And they may see that that takes you somewhere else. That's kind of, we're the home of the Seller Doer Academy, which is where we teach people those, the technical people, the skills that they need to sell in, in the professional services industry. So um, it's not a scam. I'm not trying to, I'm not going to steal something. No, no, it's all good. So when they see that reader, right, but it's unbridled revenue. Right. And we'll have that for those of you watching, uh, seeing this in a format where you have the show notes visible, we'll have the links to unbridledrevenue.com and also uh, Jim's LinkedIn profile as well. So Jim Rogers, thank you so much for stopping by Business Growth on Purpose. We really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and experience. Thanks. I appreciate you too, Jose. You know, maybe you can help me with, maybe you can help me with the, the brand confusion over my Seller Doer Academy and Unbridled <laughs> Revenue. I think we might be able to do something there. We'll, we'll work on that. I'm a Harvard Business Review case study and brand confusion. Maybe you can help me figure that out. Absolutely. All right, Jim. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of Business Growth on Purpose. If you like the show, hit subscribe and leave us a review to help other people find the podcast. And if you're ready to take the next step in driving intentional growth for your business, come check out what we're doing at valueprop.com. We've developed industry-leading programs and systems to help B2B owners take control of their growth. Until then, thanks for listening to another episode of Business Growth on Purpose.